You are listening to the message by Antioch Center for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Presence is so rich, and I'm excited to be able to share his word with you. I have a message that he gave to me actually in the beginning of the week, and so I'm happy to be able to be here with you to share it. And I believe that uh, if your heart is open and you look closely at what God's Word says, you will be blessed by this message. I know I've been blessed as I spent the day meditating on it. It's one of those very, 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 very early mornings for me. Uh, almost not morning, like 1 a.m. And the, the, but the Lord, when He decides to speak, you have no choice. So He started speaking. And, I fought him for a while. And I put my head back. So very early in the morning, he started speaking to me, and I, and I, I came here. Actually, I sat over there. I sit here. I come here when nobody's here. I like to be in the midnight and just pray, pray for this place. I pray. <laughs> I pray for what just happened. I pray for that, seeking the Lord. I ask for vortexes. I ask for doors to open up. I ask for portals into the eternal place. And uh, he grants those things. He listens carefully to the exact words. I feel the anointing of the Holy Spirit. I feel it so powerful. I'm just happy. I'm so happy that the Spirit of the living God is upon me. He has anointed me to preach. And really, in considerations of altars, I'll put up the title of my message, uh, Altars of Change, examining the memorials of God's transformative power. God uh, has always been hard at work in the lives of his people, and in response to the way that he's moved in the hearts of people, they have built altars. And I want to define altar first. And some of this is just simply uh, what you might find in Wikipedia or online. An altar is a structure upon which offerings such as sacrifices are made for religious purposes. Altars are found at shrines, temples, churches, and other places of worship. They're used particularly in Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, Shinto, Taoism, and throughout the Word of God, we see these altars of memorials or these memorial altars uh, to mark pivotal moments in the lives of the patriarchs when everything changed. And the nature of the altar is change. And so every time an altar appears, something dramatically changed, something drastically was transformed in the lives of the patriarchs. And really, you do not see altars in the New Testament in activity that way. It's an Old Testament principle by and large, but of course the Jews still had altars. And for us, you know, we think about it in Christianity today. We have evolved to see the altar as a place where we can go to reconcile with God and receive a blessing through prayer, devotion, and a holy occasion of consecration. Uh, that's that's why we call the moment after the message where the speaker provokes the people to have a certain response to the message, an altar call. Now, I know we've heard that term before, that there would be an altar call, and you go up, 
and to the front of the church, not necessarily to a physical altar, but for us it's more of a metaphor in Christianity. We have altar experiences, but we don't have physical altars. We don't have piles of rocks in our back. Well, some of you might if you're a bit more mystic. You could. There's nothing wrong. Because definitely the physical is touched by the spiritual. And I know places and have had places where I have erected altars in spirit and the physical place was affected. Uh, you've heard my story about that once, that I had an encounter with God where he showed me eternity. And that room was changed in a, in a prayer meeting or a fellowship uh, sometime after that. All of the people disappeared, and I found them in that room. I did not talk. It was my private study. About 15 of them were in that room, standing there, staring at each other in silence. And I didn't know. I thought they all left. And I went in the room. I said, well, what are you doing in here? And the leader of them looked at me and said, what happened in this room? And they felt that, of course, it was a glorious uh in, in uh, God touched me in a powerful way when I was in that room, and it definitely was an altar. So uh, that altar had a physical uh, um, effect, which is really strange. But of course, we know the anointing has an effect. The Spirit has an effect on us, the way it affects our bodies, the way I felt a moment ago, and the way I am overwhelmed. My emotions seem to go to the furthest extent, to an extreme, and I erupt with certain glee and satisfaction, elation of the fact that God is with me, he's touching me, and that's a good thing. Now, as I considered this theme further in relation to our lives as believers, I saw the altars uh, to be the naming of encounters with the Holy Spirit or the naming of encounters with God, because all the altars also are connected to a specific name given to God. This is when we pray the names of God. All of those names are associated with altars. Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Mkadesh, Jehovah Shalom, Jehovah Nisi. Those individual names were names given by people when they made altars because they met God in those pivotal moments to such an extent that they had to name him something different because it went beyond what their religious terminology had taught them. It went beyond what their mentality had told them. It wasn't good just to say God any longer. It wasn't enough. He's bigger than that. He's better than that. He's the one that has done this for me, or the one that has touched me like this. And they named him names specifically according to those moments. And we do this too in our experiences with the Holy Spirit. Our encounters with the Holy Spirit are times that God becomes very real to us. And we change the way we think. We change the way we feel. And subsequently act in regards to our spirituality, we change our actions. We become more spiritual. That's an altar. I've had many encounters with the Lord over the years, and really I found that each encounter, for me, represents specific milestones or waypoints in my journey with God. And I remember every altar. I, re I remember every moment when things changed in me. Those pivotal moments. I can remember the time, the place, the hour of the day, the stains on the carpet under my feet. I can remember the smell. I remember everything surrounding these encounters that I've had with them through the years. And these encounters are progressive and clear to me. Uh, some 
have been very positive and exciting advances in my walk with Christ in the sense that it was uh, an exaltation of my soul. I felt great and I felt happy. Others, however, have been sharp rebukes and correction. In fact, I would say the probably the most valuable altars of my life are the ones where he has come to basically whip me and correct me and straighten me out. When I felt most loved is the moments that he corrects me. And I love his correction. And, and that is his rebuke. Now, all of these things, of course, have made me what I am. All of these encounters, all of these altars mark the moments when God did something to form us, to shape us, and to make us. Altars in our lives are, in fact, eternal happenings. And when I was thinking about this and meditating on it this morning, the Lord was speaking to me. So to explain this better, this is what he told me, to consider the natural versus the spiritual happenings in life. There are a lot of things that can have an effect on us that are not necessarily eternal things. And that means that there is a natural side. There are natural memorials. There are natural icons or times in our life that we've experienced things that have indelibly marked us or changed us, but they're not necessarily spiritual moments. They're not good or bad. In fact, they can be great, but we really wouldn't call them an altar. They're just in the natural. And what I mean by altars being different than natural moments is that we have times in life that occur as a result of these natural experiences, earthly existence, daily living, biological functions as a human being, work and play as a human, or also natural things that we live and from which many memories are created. And these natural happenings and memories are earthbound, yet can be spiritual in nature at times. And these moments are often created by interactions with people or with places. And uh, we have memories of friends and family that have both blessed and cursed us. Uh, we've had memories, we've had experiences with people that have left us better and some that have left us worse. So-called worse. I believe that there's no such thing in God's economy because the worst things can be the best things. That's what he does. He changes nightmares into dreams come true. He can do anything when we trust him. Of course, there's sometimes a spiritual component. Traumatic events can indelibly mark us in life and instill fears and stigmas that negatively affect us or hold us back. Uh, maybe violations or abuse, different levels of abuse that we go through. That's physical interactions that may forever change if you, as a child, I'm speaking of myself, an uncle that you trust shoved you into a swimming pool knowing that you could not swim and you filled your lungs with water trying to breathe. To this day, I'm afraid of swimming pools. I can swim. Of course, I fought past that fear, and I can swim. I can swim well enough. I can do 50, 60 laps in an Olympic-sized pool, enough that if a boat capsized, I can, I can swim the shore. And that's what I trained myself to do. But I respect the pool so much in an unnatural, fearful way. Why? Because someone traumatically shoved me, and I remember that moment in the water going in my lungs and the blue blur 
of the pool when I went down. It's a very traumatic experience. And tied to that, of course, can be spirits. Spirits of fear, spirits of torment. If unforgiveness is connected to that, my gosh, then you can be handed over to the tormentors as a result of not forgiving people for having done these things. So often spiritual entities are involved in these moments, and they can be used to negatively hold us back from being free. But God can set us free. In fact, the natural picture of these interactions that mark our life are the reasons why we need altars. Because all the patriarchs had experiences with people, and they suffered at the hands of people. But God always faithfully delivered them. And that is where the altars came from. So spiritually, the altars in the Bible and our lives are the moments when God intervenes in our lives and changes something about us or our situation in ways that cause us to advance, to grow, and to learn. And these are moments of blessings, moments of deliverance, uh, these are times of enlightenment, revelation. It's like the curtains are pulled back and you see things that you've never seen before. You perceive things you've never perceived before. I built an altar on top of a mountain called um, near a little village called Okotlan, where God touched me in 1995. And that altar was built April 7th, 845 AM in 1995 is a very specific encounter I had with God in that moment. And I know the place where it happened. If I went there now, I drove there, I'm sure not only would I remember the exact place, but I probably would feel something if I went there. I've not been there since that time. Times of enlightenment, revelations. The altars of the patriarchs show us biblical patterns of these moments. So we can study some of these altars to learn about the importance of them in our lives. Now how I went about finding this was a more interested not just in the sheer mention of altars but where it says that someone built an altar. And that's what the Holy Spirit led me to do. He said go look for the places that someone built an altar. And the people who built altars Look at their lives. Why did they do it? And so that's what this message really consists of. Another way of thinking about altars is that they are remembrances, reminders, if you will, of the deeds of God in our lives that convince us of his reality. He did something that proved to us, no, he's real. And as a result, we memorialize the moment, and it becomes a strong anchor of our existence and we can never forget those things we don't want to forget Deuteronomy 4:23 says be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you Psalm 103 verse 2 praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits the reason it says this many times in the Bible is because we have a tendency to forget what God does and I find that if I brush off testimonies, recently, not that far back, we talked about testimonies. If I brush off testimonies and share about those experiences, which are my altars, I relive that moment. And I stir up the gift that is in me by the laying on of hands, by the presbytery praying for me, the things that Paul told um, Timothy to do. So the power of testimony comes from the remembering 
of the altars of our lives. Now, in this message, I'm going to just look at seven altars of change. In actuality, there are somewhere, when it comes to altars being built, about 42 of them. Uh, I studied all of them to pick the ones for you that are relative to what I believe the Lord was telling me. So I want to start with the first one, interestingly, the altar of salvation, because that's where everything starts. Uh, you don't need an altar of creation because you're just created. You're not involved in that at all. You just are. You were formed in your mother's womb. He knew you then, it says in Jeremiah. So you've always existed. You're part of the biological production of humanity. God made us this way. You have no choice in that. But salvation is a choice. And so every altar, an altar does not just make itself. A man makes an altar. A person makes the altar. So this is the first altar someone's building in the Bible that we can see. Genesis 8, 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on land, came out of the ark one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. It's interesting that God made him take seven kind of the clean and only pairs of the unclean, because God was not interested in an unclean sacrifice. He wanted to make sure. And one thing I have found out about the Lord is he will always provide a sacrifice for you. If it's a ram in the thicket, he will provide it. In fact, God gives you things so that you can sacrifice them. He gives you life so that you can sacrifice your life in service to him. And if you save your life, you lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you save it. If it becomes a sacrifice... It says that we are living sacrifices. And I heard one preacher say years ago, and it stuck with me, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps climbing off the altar. <laughs> yeah, I like that too. But here Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. <laughs> Interestingly, I can smell a pleasing aroma. <laughs> it said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans. Even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, will never cease. Now I call this the altar of salvation. No one in his family were the only survivors of a terrible and sinful world that was destroyed. God saw that man was so wicked, he decided to wipe them off the face of the earth. But Noah found favor in God's eyes because he was a righteous man. He was perfect in his generations. He was a good guy to God. So good that God said, I can start a whole other population because I found a good seed. And he chose Noah as a result. And after this, all this process of the purging of, the, of all that lived on the earth, he built an altar 
in memorial to God. And this is the altar of salvation. We give thanks to God and even offer sacrifices to him on this altar because we're so grateful that he has saved us from the darkness and sin of this world. He has rescued us out, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We once walked according to the prince of the power of the air. Our father was once Lucifer himself, governing our lives, maintaining us, motivating us, and driving us with an army of demons at our left and right, and we were oblivious to it, just living in bondage and under the dark control of the satanic forces. But God called out to us. God saw us. For whatever reason, I never, I never grow tired of thanking him for saving me. I return to the altar of salvation every day, and I, I give offerings on it, and I say, thank you, God, for saving a wretch like me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I cannot believe that you came and found me and save me. You pulled me out of the wickedness of this world. You pulled me out of the, the evil of earth and safe, separated me. Made me build an ark and gather the things in it and move on. Of course, it's the symbolism of it, but it is definitely an experience that we have. God calls us, we get saved, and I have such clear memories of my salvation. You've heard the story many times. In that time, the TV, the guy on the TV said, do you want to receive Jesus as your personal Savior? It was so amazing because I did not have people evangelizing me at that time. I was just seeking on my own, trying to find God. But that night, I prayed and asked, according to the man on the television, because he said, do you want to receive Jesus as your personal Savior? And I said to the television, yes, I do. What do I need to do? Just say this prayer with me. It was like we were having a conversation. And I have no doubt at all that the Holy Spirit was giving me the sentences and the words to make me truly feel that I was on a teleconference with this guy on this old black and white television in the 1980s. And I, I said, yeah, well, what do I need to do? All you need to do is pray this prayer. I said, what prayer? Just repeat after me. It was literally like a, like a dialogue we were having. And I got saved. In fact, the glory of God, when it came upon me and saved me, rendered me unconscious. I actually passed out. After I prayed to receive Jesus, I passed out. And I stayed out for about nine hours. And I woke up the next morning, my face in pain, because I smiled all night for the first time in many years. I smiled, and the muscles that I was smiling with had apparently semi-atrophied. And now, being used for the first time after so long, it was painful. And I went in the mirror and looked in the morning, looked in the bathroom, my face, with this big, stupid grin. And that, that's what hurts. I felt like my cheeks were burning. My smile was so big. And that was an altar. That night, an altar was built right there in my house, an altar of salvation that I go back. In fact, that altar is so powerful. There's such a presence around that altar that when I do crusades, when I do outreaches, when I do meetings, I share that story and people come to know Jesus as a result because of the power that emanates from the altar of salvation in my life. You have that altar. 
Don't forget it. Do not forget the benefits of the Lord. Don't forget the work that he's done. He saved you. You should visit the altar of salvation every day and give an offering to him. An offering of prayer, an offering of recognition of his greatness. And of course, we get saved and we're living in Christ for a while, but then God starts to want to do something with us. He starts to want to bring us somewhere. He wants to use us. I heard someone today talking about the vines, you know, we, uh, the vines and the branches. Uh, he is the vine. We are the branches. A branch that grows off the main vine in grapes. There, The vine actually will only successfully produce grapes after one year of life. And once it passes that year, then it will no longer produce. It will only take the sap from, and that's why it's broken off. That's where it speaks about that. So God doesn't just leave you. He may give you some time to grow, but eventually he's going to call you. And that's the altar of calling. And this is now Abraham, when he was still called Abram. Uh, my pastor, my spiritual father, Ken Dunbar, his name was actually Abram Kinnard Dunbar. And I always wondered, why they name you Abram? Why not Abraham? And he got mad at me for asking. And so I never asked again. <laughs> but I was present one time when someone else asked. And that's why he didn't, I don't know, I'm sure it's not why he didn't use that name. He used the name for Kinnard, he used Kin, K-I-N. So he was Ken Dunbar, and uh, it was really, Ken, I remember my father-in-law who couldn't stand him because, you know, pastors are often hated by the, the people who lose their children to the faith or lose these associations or these allegiances, and man, my father-in-law couldn't stand, and he, couldn't, he would never, I think he did it on purpose, he would never call him by his correct name. He would call him that Kinbar man. Kinbar, man, he can stand it. Because, because Barbara, uh, Barbara and I both, we absolutely adored Brother Ken Dunbar. He was everything to us, our father and great. And we still have our spiritual mother alive and well and kicking out there, Vida. And she might even watch this. Love you. So the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. And most of you know that Haran means settling or settlement. And we know that Terah, Abram's father, was the one that received the first call to Canaan or to the promised land. We just recently talked about the promised land. But God called that family to go, but his father settled in the settling place. Be careful about where you settle. I don't see people settling a lot in the Bible. Uh, God's patriarchs were almost always nomadic. They were moving around, moving around. And I like that idea. As a missionary, of course, through all these years, we've lived in 28 different houses. We're, we've been very nomadic. We move from place to place. And, and I love it. My goal is eventually just live in hotels and just have a suitcase, and that's everything. 
I d- definitely would love just to just live and move around constantly in ministry, preaching and teaching. And some people say, well, no, you don't really mean that. You know, we all need some permanence. Yeah, you might need some permanence. I like to the freedom. Uh, my favorite moments in life are when we transitioned from nation to nation and I had no keys in my pocket. In fact, those are altars of transition. In other words, I had no keys because I had no doors to not, no ignition keys for vehicles. No, I was in, in limbo between two nations with nothing. And those are such a happy moment. You don't realize how much weight is upon you because of the things that you possess. And when you don't have anything, that's why Jesus would often tell people, just sell everything, give it to the poor, come follow me. So he goes on here. He took his wife, Abram did, Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now I call this, as as you saw, the altar of calling, because Abraham was living in this world that his father had that was a settling place, and God did not want him settled there. God had a purpose and a design for that family, and just because his father did not comply, he had to call him out of that group of people. Sometimes people closest to us can actually be a hindrance to what God's calling us to do. If God ever tells you to come out, If he ever tells you to leave, if he ever tells you to separate yourself from a people, from a place, make sure that you listen. It's because he has a design and a plan to bring you into his best. And God called Abraham out of that land of settling and brought him forward to fulfill his purpose for his life. Abraham built an altar to mark this fact as God appeared to him. So here we see an encounter with God that started with Abraham hearing God's voice. In the first part of that, those verses that we read, it says the Lord said to Abram. But in the latter part of the verses, it says he appeared to him. And I see a progression here. This is exactly how God, God will first speak to you or reveal something to you in your heart and your mind before he actually appears to you. And the first is a test to see if you merit the second. You say, I thought this is by grace and we don't, we don't earn anything. No, no, he's looking for people that are going to worship him in spirit and in truth. He's looking for people that are going to press in. Since the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom of God allows violent behavior and the violent take it by force. So he's looking and he's putting things out there. God, as far as his blessings, his ministries and his callings, he does uh, a used car term that my friend Michael Corsentino taught me years ago. He does the takeaway. The takeaway is a thing where you see the thing and they know you, salesman knows you like it, and he says, well, you know, whatever, right? I got, I got other people that are, I, I have to go. And you walk away, although as a salesman, you, wanna, you know that person is waiting, but you do the takeaway like, okay, never mind, so that you can draw out of them. Well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Um, can we talk a little bit more? Well, you know, um, and my friend told me he'll actually pretend like he's, you know, as a salesman. Actually, he's an evangelist. And he's desperately trying to sell his car lot now. 
as quite successful. God blessed him. He's been great. But now he's like he has now been traveling and preaching all over Central America or South America, that region. And of course, always preach. He's always been an evangelist since he got saved. But now he's on fire. To he just wants to leave everything and go. So may the Lord bless him. Uh, from Antioch, we pray for Michael Corsentino to be blessed, to be used by God, and to be birthed into His full ministry. Amen. How many of you agree? If you're watching, Michael, we love you. So this encounter with Abraham was the same. He's calling him into the fulfillment. And we have moments when we feel God redirects our lives and speak to us. This is uh, an altar. This is a point of change or call. We respond and he reveals himself to us in a visitation or epiphany about him. And we mark this moment as the moment when we changed or he changed us, better said. And this happened to me and my wife on Little Farms Road in a place called Harahan, interestingly close to Haran. And I've never really caught that before until this very moment. It, the name of the place was Harahan. It sounds a lot like Haran. And it really was where we were sitting that day was where we planned on settling. It was a house that God was going to let us have. And he said, you can have it. And he even gave us a vision of all the blessings of it and what we would have and all the great things and the cocker spaniel and the trampoline and the built-in swimming pool and the two cars and the whole American dream. And God said, I, I will give you all those things and I will love you. Or you can do my perfect will for you. And he revealed to us his perfect will, which was a black road going down into a valley and you could not see anything there just darkness. But he said, or you can do my perfect will for your life. See, that was an altar. My wife and I, like Thelma and Louise driving off the cliff, held each other's hands. That may have dated me. Uh, we held each other's hands and we, we prayed and we giggled with anticipation about the rest of our lives and the future that would come. And an altar was formed and I'll never forget that moment. I have these altars. How many of you are learning something? Amen. Number three, we go to the altar of blessings. Now, the family line, of course, all those that were part of the Abrahamic covenant, they're coming into the blessings that Abraham lived and passed down. So from there, he went up to Beersheba uh, that night. Now, this, is, this is Isaac, by the way. That night, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not be afraid. For I am with you, I will bless you, and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. Now this is the first time we really see Isaac calling on the name of the Lord. And we know Isaac kind of took from his father the inheritance and he was blessed. He was not allowed to go far, but Rebekah was brought to him. But now, as he's growing and moving and learning, now he has to be responsible with the family line and with his future. And so his father is very old. Now he has to step out and live and move in life. And so he did, and he called upon the name of the Lord. And he built an altar, and he called on his name, and there he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Now, this chapter that we're taking this from is quite a big chapter. We won't read the whole thing. But the entire chapter 26 is a picture of Isaac living life under 
God's direction. And these are the things we see. Number one, God appeared to Isaac. Two, God promised Isaac. And this is the Abrahamic covenant, which, by the way, is your covenant too. Our covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. It is our right, and we are part of that. We are the nations that would be blessed through him. So we have the same rights that Abraham had and that Isaac had and that Jacob had and all the patriarchs. That's why we have the book about them called the Bible, because they're our forefathers. And we study them and learn from them and can say that's Uncle Isaac and, and that's Papa Abraham and all these people through our lives. But God promised Isaac just like he promises us things. God protected Isaac. Now this, of course, was he made some mistakes. So let's say he was fearful, and it's not uncommon for us to be fearful. Although he had this great inheritance, he was afraid that the people would take his wife from him. So he said that it was his sister, which is not unlike what daddy did. So now Isaac does this, and um, they take her, and now she's, we don't know all the details of exactly what happened, uh, but suffice it to say, Isaac lost his wife for a short while until they were seen talking to each other, and he caressed her in a way that you would not caress a sister, unless you're from a weird family. But his, his wife, he then therefore was in danger, and he had to be protected by God. And God worked in a dream to the king and showed him, don't touch this guy. See, that's, that's God protecting Isaac. And that's what Isaac did. He called out to the Lord. When we call out to the Lord, we build an altar of blessings, and blessings will be put upon it for us. But we cry out to God, and God hears our prayer, and he appears to us. He promises us these blessings. He protects us. Uh, it says God prospered Isaac. He certainly did, a hundredfold return. I was thinking about it. Man, if you showed me some type of fund or investment in a bank where I could get within one year a 100-fold return, that's a pretty good investment. Wouldn't you, if you had a guarantee, the bank is guaranteeing you that if you put $100,000 in this account, you will get 100 times that in one year's time. That would be great. Now, there may be actually investments out there like that that some people may have been able to buy into. I know it's possible, but that is supernatural. And that's exactly what Isaac experienced in that year. Right, one year after he did what he did, God blessed him as he decided to follow God. God led Isaac through the difficult, uh, difficult times of life. He led him through the trials with the wells. And this chapter goes on to all these wells that he dug. And there was contention and fighting and quarreling. And people stole his wells from him and threw him out of their land. But God led him to establish him. Finally, he had room enough. He did a good well. God blessed him, multiplied him crazy ways. So much so that he became a nation in front of these kings who were afraid. And they actually came... Uh, to make peace with him because they felt threatened by Isaac. the same guy they threw out and stole his wells from. So yeah. Isaac built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. This is the altar of blessing. So here we give thanks for all that God has done to preserve and bless us over a lifetime. And this understanding of this altar actually uh, can only be built by experience with God's faithfulness to you. 
So younger Christians don't quite have this altar yet. You have some small little blessings, but when you live longer, you see the multitude of blessings that God gives you. You build an altar to it, and you give God honor on that place. You call him the blessor. You call him the one that blesses you. Number four, uh, the altar of revival. Transformation could be another word you say here. Genesis 35, 1, this is now Jacob. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak of Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Now this is interesting because we see kind of a metamorphosis. We see the interesting fact that Jacob and his children were caught up in idolatry. Although this is a patriarch, we see the whole family has idols. The whole family is wearing clothing that marked them to other deities and gods. That's why they had to change their clothes. They had to get rid of the jewelry they had on because it was associated with the religions that they were a part of, which were not Jehovah God's religions. And God tolerated that for a while. God was patient with their spiritual development and understanding of him. But the time came that he called Jacob to repent and change. And when he did, an altar was formed. In fact, he told him at that time, you need to build an altar. And that altar has to be an altar of transformation, an altar of revival. And this is the altar where we are called to repent and change our lives. It could be thought of as the altar of correction, too. Because here, God is coming to correct him about the ways that they were, in which they were living. And they yielded to it. And as a result, God blessed them with the anointing that caused fear to spread through the land, that no one would dare touch them. See, it was his concern because of what happened with Dinah and the, the children took the guy that raped their sister and um, they did the, the, the sneaky thing and having them all get circumcised and then murdering them all. And, and of course, um, Jacob was petrified that now the people would see them as a curse and kill them. So he repented for a number of reasons. One, because he was scared. That's a good, how many of you know that's a good motivation? That's how I got saved. I repented and got saved because I was scared of going to hell. And this was a, an altar of correction. These are moments in life when God brings correction to us and tells us to change something. And when he does that, listen to God. Listen, if he tells you to change something, don't, don't fight him. If he tells you to build an altar and get rid of those things, Stop doing that thing, whatever it is. I'm not here to condemn you. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't have a word of knowledge. God's not showing me your private sins or anything like that. I'm not saying that he couldn't, but he doesn't, and he has not to me. I remember we had one preacher that was very scary that would come preach in a church when I was 17, and he would he'd be preaching all the time, and he would do this. And he'd go back to his message, 
Man, that guy gave me diarrhea. Every time he made me so nervous. When he would look at me, his name is Brother Rod Aguilar. And actually, you can go look at him in online. He's still alive and kicking. He's still like a, you know very very youthful, but uh, he's somewhere in his gosh. How old is Brother Rod, Robert? Do you know? Yeah, he's like close to 80, but he's still, he is part indigenous American. So he has that kind of a, a dark complexion and, uh, but the big brow. And that's what he would look, look like that. And we would, all the young people in the church with, you know, issues that we would put our heads down. But I loved Brother Rod because it felt like a father, and which is what I needed in my life at the time. Uh, number five, the altar of victory. Exodus 17, verse 8, The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and her went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. I mean, in other words, this is interesting. There was a marked difference from the time that Moses had his hands stretched up to when he started getting a little weary. Every once in a while, you know, he had to scratch something. And as soon as his hand went down, the Amalekites would start to win. Apparently, they're looking from the hill, so you get a really good view of the valley of war and this battle going on, and, and everybody's fighting each other. And his hands are up, and the Israelites are pushing them back and pushing them back, and the Amalekites are dying and fleeing. And all of a sudden, he's got an itch, and the Amalekites would rise up and fight back. You have to picture it in your head. This is actually what was happening. So, uh, Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll. Uh, actually, I, I forgot to read this part. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And that's really cool because, you know, as far as Moses was, Moses may have even fallen asleep. He was an old guy. So he might have just been sleeping there with his hands up in the air. They were holding on to his hands and he's just resting. He could have been sleeping. It didn't matter. It was just the facts of his presence and the authority and the anointing that was upon him that was released by the raising of his hand. I don't understand it entirely. I remember one time one of my favorite preachers and a missionary that motivated me to become a missionary, David Hogan, was at our church, and he said, one time he just, he, he said a lot of strange things. This is back in the 1980s, and he still says strange things, but they're excitingly strange things. And he said, God gave me a gift. And whenever I raise my hand up like this, it gets hot. It gets hot. I feel heat come in my hand. And then I can cast the devil out. And I can lay hands on the sick. And they get hit. I remember him going on and on. And I never forget, because in that meeting, I'm like trying to see if I can get my hand hot putting it in the air. But believe me, that man's hands are hot. If you've never seen him preach, go watch. First of all, he doesn't preach. He does. He'll take like a verse. So 
talk a little bit about it and then tell you a thousand stories. But the kind of stories that make you think that's not even possible. But they are possible. And they do happen. Uh, they stopped counting dead raised in the hundreds. I mean, unbelievable testimonies and miracles in this guy's life. The last story I heard from him is when they went into Pakistan and he was doing crusades and preaching and God took this young boy, um, uh, all the Muslims came together, all women, full burkers and everything they brought as a test for Jesus, this crippled boy that was like a ball, just totally twisted the bones of this kid. He was completely deformed and they laid the baby in front of him on the stage like a showdown. And he tells the story, I don't want to steal the fire of his story, but believe me, I can't do justice to the way he tells his stories. But he did, he prayed in front of everybody, and he said, it sounded like somebody breaking firewood up. He said, you could hear the bones in that boy snapping, snap, pop, crack, pop, and all of his limbs straightened out. God made the boy straight and healed him. And all, now they are converged on the stage and basically all of the uh, imams the leaders they had to see this for themselves because you see a real miracle you got to see it and they saw it and they knew that it was valid and all of them just turned to David and said we need Jesus what do we do and they all got saved oh it's just amazing story he said in that same meeting you could hear bullets going over the stage <laughs> because they were shooting at the uh, crusade. But he's got stories, believe me, none of my stories hold a candle to his stories. Go, Just go look him up. Uh, we used to call him the wild man. Freedom Ministries is his ministry. Uh, great guy. So here we see the altar of victory. The Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it. Because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So here the Israelites were blessed under the promise of God to Abraham. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant. And his descendants. This, however, did not mean that they were not going to have to fight. Uh, just because you are blessed and called and God has separated you and you're going to be his nation and his people does not mean you're not going to have a war. And you will fight that war. But I want to make sure that you're with the right company. You want to make sure Moses is on the hill. Make sure Moses is on the hill with his hands raised and have a couple of guys at his right and left to hold those hands up if he gets tired. You go down into the valley and you fight and God will give you uh, a great victory. God gave them victory. Moses built an altar, naming it, The Lord is my banner. So you know, we receive Jesus, and we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Our sins are forgiven, and we're free from the bondages of sin. Uh, we're called to be something that God wants us to be. Uh, it's not easy, however. And, and just because it's, it's something we know God has said, it doesn't mean it's just free. We're going to have to fight for it. There'll be challenges and battles, and we'll have to fight for our place to take it by force. And the victory will be ours, however. If you just show up on the battlefield, God will give you the victory.
Just don't shrink back. Don't pull back from the challenges. Keep pressing in. Keep pressing in. And keep pressing in. And we will build an altar of remembrance of the victory that God gives us. And it will be our heritage later on. We will tell stories to our friends and our children and our grandchildren and our great children, uh, great grandchildren about how God delivered us out of the valley of war. And that he is Jehovah Nisi, my banner. And his banner, his standard over me, invokes fear in the forces of the enemy. And the enemy will be obliterated. Their name will be removed from the face of the earth as long as my God stands over me. That's a good altar. That's a good altar. He will give you victory. Number six, the altar of change. I like this. Judges chapter 6, verse 24. One of my favorite Bible characters, Gideon. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. To this day, it stands in Oprah of the Abizarites, or Abizarites. The same night, the Lord said to him, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it, then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord, your God, on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. Now I call this the altar of change because, you know, Gideon's father had made an improper altar to the wrong God, Sometimes we can memorialize things. Sometimes our families, our predecessors are a part of something that maybe is different now or God changes. Things are always changing. God never changes, but the things he does radically change from year to year, from generation to generation. But in this case, of course, Gideon's father was serving the wrong gods. There was an altar, however. But sometimes altars have to be torn down and changed into a proper altar. I like that it says that. Make sure you have the proper altars. Before this moment, Gideon, Gideon had not known that there was anything wrong with the old altar. This is him getting called and shown that things were wrong. And that will mark, there will be a time that God will come to you and you just suddenly feel like your blinders are taken off and you realize you had something wrong for a long time and it's time to change the altar. That's exactly what happened to me concerning prayer. As a young Christian, I was taught to pray. I learned the mechanical, religious form of prayer, the hallelujah, hallelujah, Father God, Father God, Father God prayer, and the performance mentality. I prayed to be seen by others, and that really, I thought, was the motivation for prayer, was so that people could say you were a prayer warrior. And I, I was wrong. Now, not everybody does that, but I did. And my prayer form and idea, it got heavier and more religious. I had a 15-page outline for prayer that was printed on dot matrix paper that I left. I did not tear the preparation, so it was a big, long sheet. I called it my holy scroll of prayer, and I would open up, and it had all kinds of uh, demons on it, and spiritual forces, and so much stuff that I was going through, and my prayer life became a misery to me. It was a miserable. Praying was like going to the dentist for a root canal to me. I didn't want to do it because I killed it. I made it and altered that it was not supposed to be. But I remember the day that God spoke to me. 
I remember the day he, I, I, this is after my encounter with God. I had that prayer outline. I went to go back to pray that outline again. And the Lord said, what are you doing? Spoke to me just like that. What are you doing? And I said, well, Lord, I'm praying. And he said, that's not prayer. And he said, let it go. And I dropped that outline from my hand. When I did, I, I remember it was like slow motion. It fell to the ground and landed on that carpet. We had a, a, a fake Persian rug. It landed on that fake Persian rug. And I knew I would never go back to that form again. And his holiness came, his purity came, his presence came in reality. Right after that, we started seeing souls saved. We started seeing miracles. We started seeing the visitation of God. It just required that I change the altar. And it's important that you do that. Uh, religion dying. There are moments in life when we change the way we do things. And we are challenged to stop the old way of doing things and do something different. And these times are pivotal moments for us. Religion dying. Number seven. This is the altar of misunderstanding. And this is the most interesting of all of them for me. It might be a little technical, but we're going to get through it. And then we'll pray. Joshua chapter 22. This is the story of the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh who decided to stay on the opposite side of the Jordan when all the other tribes were on the other side. So two and a half tribes are on this side, and you have um, nine and a half tribes on the other side. And so they're over there, and this is how the story goes. It says, When they came to Gililoth, near the Jordan, in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. And when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gililoth, near the Jordan of of the Israelite side, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. Now, this made them angry. And the reason is because they assumed, and this is based upon assumptions, misunderstandings, they assumed the Israelites, uh, the, or based upon assumptions, the Israelites in Canaan decided that the intentions of the two and a half tribes were to diverge from their faith in Jehovah and to become something cultish or different. And they acted on that assumption in such a way that they were on their way to kill them. They were on their way to, to assassinate them for having done this breach. But this is based on an assumption. It is actually not a fact. And later they talk in verse and verse 23, it says, If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. So based upon their assumptions, they do this. And you see finally in verse um, 32, we end with this. Then Phinehas, son of Eleazar the priest, and the leaders returned to Canaan from their meeting with the Reubenites, the Gadites, in Gilead, and reported to the Israelites. They were glad to hear the report and praise God. And they talked no more about going to war against them to devastate the country where the Reubenites and the Gadites lived. And the Reubenites and the Gadites gave the altar this name, a witness between us that the Lord is God. So I really find that this is probably one of the greatest hallmarks of our spiritual growth and development. 
when we come into misunderstandings, miscommunications, but we do not go to the point of destroying, but we find out motivations, reasons, and thoughts. I have a lot of these altars in relationships with my life where I had assumed, and you know there are people out there that are quick to assume things. They seem to think they have absolute discernment of the hidden motivations of every human heart. And as soon as something goes wrong, they think they know for sure why that person did what they did. In this case, they knew for sure that the Reubenites, Gadites, and half the tribe of Manasseh, absolutely, they built this altar to offer sacrifices unto God on that side and diverge from us. That was not why. The real motivation was simply because they didn't want their children to forget how important God was. And they did not offer sacrifices on that altar. It was a memorial. But the real thing about it was a memorial of misunderstanding and then an understanding. A witness between us that the Lord is God. The altar of misunderstanding is when you've had a divergence, but you come together and decide that God is judge. And God knows right and wrong. And he decides. And you don't judge them. You don't come to decisions about them. But you live in peace and harmony with people. Sometimes you agree to disagree. And that becomes an altar. If you can learn to do that and just accept people in their, in their thoughts and their ideas and keep going, it does not necessarily mean that you will stay together. In this case, they stayed on that side of the river. They did their thing, but it was not what they suspected. And so we learn from that experience. And if we don't form that altar, we will be forever bound to destroying relationships. And we will find ourselves on a path of many broken relationships because we assume things about people. And verify, listen, interview, talk, listen to the heart, find out. That's what happens at the altar of misunderstanding. You come together and you let God be Lord of the relationship and the altar itself is the witness between you and that person or that group. Amen? And that actually is my favorite one. It's a lot deeper than it seems. Uh, we won't go into the details of it because we've been going on for quite a while. These are the altars, though. Seven altars of change. We saw the altar of salvation. And when we get saved, we have an altar. Remember the altar of salvation. Uh, the altar of calling, where Abraham was called out to do something great. That's an altar in our life. The altar of blessings. This is where you cry out to God. You call upon the name of the Lord and you see a hundredfold return. You see miraculous things happen in your life and you know that it's God and you give him glory for it. The altar of revival. This is where Jacob and his children had to leave their idols, change their life and become something else. The altar of victory. This is where they, Moses had to have his hands held up so that Joshua and the armies could win. But later you know without a doubt that in an impossible situation God will give you the victory anyway. Then the altar of change we saw and then finally the altar of misunderstanding. Amen? Uh, these are the altars that we see and we want to give glory to God for bringing us through these steps in our life. Why don't we stand up? We're going to pray.